to their divisions by their tribes, and the land rested from war. Now these are the kings of the land which the children of Israel smote and possessed their land on the other side Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river Arnon unto Mount Hermon and all the plain on the east. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon and ruled from Aror, which is upon the bank of the river Arnon, and from the middle of the river and from half Gilead, even unto the river Jabbok, which is the border of the children of Ammon. And from the plain to the sea of Chinnereth on the east and unto the sea of the plain, even the salt sea on the east, the way to Beth Jeshemoth and from the south under Ashdoth Pisgah. And the coast of Og, king of Bashan, which was of the remnant of the giants that dwelt at Ashtaroth and at Idri, and reigned in Mount Hermon and in Salca and in all Bashan unto the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and half Gilead, the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Them did Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel smite. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it for a possession unto the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel smote on this side Jordan on the west from Belgad in the valley of Lebanon even unto the Mount Helek that goeth up to Seir which Joshua gave unto the tribes of Israel for possession according to their divisions. In the mountains and in the valleys and in the plains and in the springs and in the wilderness and in the south country, the Hittites, the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel won, the king of Jerusalem won, the king of Hebron won, the king of Jarmuth won, the king of Lachish won, the king of Eglon won, the king of Gezer won, the king of Debor won, the king of Geder won, the king of Horma won, the king of Arad won, the king of Libna won, the king of Adullam won, the king of Makeda won, the king of Bethel won, the king of Tapua won, the king of Hefer won, the king of Aphek won, the king of Lasharon won, the king of Madon won, the king of Hazor won, the king of Shimron Meron won, the king of Akshap won, the king of Tanakh won, the king of Megiddo won, the king of Kadesh and won, the king of Jotnium of Carmel won, the king of Dor in the coast of Dor won, the king of the nations of Gilgal won, the king of Terza won, all the kings thirty and one. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation that you give to us, the insight to your word. We pray that we would grow to know you better and that we would love you more through the study of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, in verse 16, we, we start the, the general summary of all of the land that was taken. Notice there in verse 16, the word all, it says, So Joshua took all that land. And down in verse number 23, it says, So Joshua took the whole land. And so this section is to underscore the totality of the of Joshua's faithfulness, of the faithfulness of the people. Um, you know, you may have noticed several times in these verses, you know, we, we are told that Joshua was very faithful, and he was. But, um, you know, great leadership, great leaders are much more effective if they have faithful followers. And, and I think 
you know, we're going to see throughout the book, particularly when we get to chapters 22 through 24, that, but that the people were also very faithful. And of course, ultimately, the Lord was faithful. As far as the description of the land here, the hill country here in verse number 16, the hills is referring to the south central part of Canaan. And this was later given to the tribe of Judah. It became part of Caleb's land. And, you know, this recap is really kind of retelling the story that we read in chapter 10 where they had conquered the majority of the southern part of Canaan before they tackled the northern part of Canaan. So that's kind of where verse 16 is going back to. So these hills that are referred to here, as it says, in the south country, that was the land that was given to Judah. And the south country was the Negev. You may have a translation that translated it that way. That's the dry country or the desert country in the very southern part of, of Canaan, the, the portion south of the Dead Sea. And then we have Goshen. And this is not to be confused with Goshen, the land that was given to the Israelites when they were in Egypt. Uh, in Genesis chapter 47, verse 6, it makes it clear that the land that Pharaoh had given to uh, Joseph's family, Jacob, and the rest of Joseph's brothers and their families was the best part of the land of Egypt. It says it was the best land in Egypt. It was good for crops and for cattle. But that's not the land that's referred to here. But what, it's, what is thought is that the Hebrew word that was given to that land that they had dwelt in in Egypt had been carried over, and so the Israelites had begun to refer to some of the land in Canaan by that same word, and so that's why it's called by the same name. And actually, if you turn over to Joshua chapter 15, verse 51, I think it kind of clarifies that it's not the land that we see referred to in the book of Genesis that was given to the Israelites in Egypt, because in verse 51, it, it is among the list of the cities that were given, or, or the portions of land that were given to the tribe of Judah. And, and that really was more confined to the central part of Canaan. So that Hebrew word for Goshen just kind of became synonymous with fertile or cultivated or rich land. Now back to verse number 16 in chapter 11. The lowland, the valley, was the areas from the hills in Judah down to the Mediterranean Sea. And then the, the plain of the Arabah, you may have a translation that uses the, the word Arabah. That is the rift of land running from the Dead Sea to the Red Sea's Gulf of Aqaba. So this is the very southeastern part of Canaan. And then we have here the mountains, the mountain of Israel. And so now it's kind of moving back to the north. And interestingly, this word here that is translated mountain, this Hebrew word, is the same Hebrew word that was translated hills in the beginning part of the verse. And if you look over at verse number 21, we see the word mountain in that verse three times. And that's the same Hebrew word, the same Hebrew word that is sometimes translated hills in our King James Version. If you were to look at the New American Standard Version that the MacArthur Study Bible uses, you would see that that word is consistently translated hills or hill country in, in all of the references, at least in chapter 11. And, I, you know, I mean, as I think about that, you know, I, 
there's a lot of criticism given to other translations. The argument isn't that they is that they are not formal equivalence translations, that they're dynamic equivalence translations, and I don't want to make too big of a deal out of it, but it's hard for me to understand how if you have the same word that is translated differently in the same verse, how that is not also a dynamic equivalence translation. So, not that it matters. I mean, I don't think, not necessarily being critical of the text in, in regard to, you know, I don't know what was going through the minds of the translators when they translated that, but I just think that sometimes the arguments that are used to argue for King James onlyism aren't really, you know, they're, they're kind of hard to really support in, in this type of a, you know, when you have evidence like this. The point here in verse number 16 is that this is all the land that the, the point that's trying to be made is that all of the land that God had intended them to take, they took. Verse number 17 kind of continues on with the description of how much land was taken. And you may have a map in your Bible. If, if not, you know, right within these pages, you may have a map at the back of your Bible. But for the most part, the, the land of Israel today is not a whole lot different than the land of Israel as it was at this time. It's a little bit different. But the, you know, the main borders, I mean, certainly the, the east and west borders haven't changed. The, the, the border, the western border is the Mediterranean Sea and the eastern border is the Jordan River. In terms of the, the northern and southern borders, that's where some of the, you know, the differences occur. But for the most part, it's very similar. Probably the biggest difference is that a lot of the land, or, or at least some of the land that is referred to here in the book of Joshua, Israel doesn't have today. It's part of Lebanon. And then there's probably a little bit of land in the south that Israel doesn't have today. But for the most part, the borders are very similar. Mount Hermon, which is mentioned here in verse number 17, is actually today shared by three different countries. Uh, it's got more than one peak and... It's shared by Lebanon on the northwest. It's shared by Syria on the east or northeast. And it's shared by Israel on the, on the southern part. And it's very much in dispute. Um, you know, the, the snows from Mount Hermon are the main source of the waters that feed the Jordan River. And Israel has developed some pretty sophisticated irrigation systems. And, and you know, a lot of people like to complain that they are, you know, draining too much water out of the Jordan River and that other countries, you know, Jordan to the east and Syria are doing the same thing. So there's, a, there's obviously a lot of dispute. And, you know, Mount Hermon is, is very, you know, it's at the top of Israel's list in terms of the land that they want to protect because obviously, you know, as I just said, it's one of the main sources of their water. And it's also, you know, they have a thriving skiing industry there and, and other things, but but that, that area in particular is shared by three different countries today. Now, in verse number 18, it says Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Now, we don't, really, we don't have to guess as to how long this was. We know that it was seven years. Turn over to Joshua chapter 14, verse 7. And we will see that it was seven years. You have to do a little bit of math, as often you have to do in the Bible, if you want to understand the time periods and the lengths of time that transpired. You have to go back and forth and, and do a little bit of work. But in Joshua chapter 14, verse 7, Caleb says, 
He says, 40 years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. So there we see that we know when they, when, when Caleb and Joshua and the other ten spies went to, on their spy mission, he was 40 years old. Now, we don't have to turn back there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, we're told specifically that 48 years was the time between when the 12 spies went to spy the land and when the children of Israel left the wilderness to, to begin going into the promised land. So if we know that Caleb was 40 years old at the time the spy mission began, and it was 38 years until they left the wilderness, we know that he was 78 years old when they began this conquest, when they crossed the Jordan River into Canaan. We know that he was 78 years old. Now, in chapter 14, look at verse number 10. Caleb says, And now, behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said these forty and five years. Remember, he was forty years old when, in verse number 7. Even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. So Caleb's making it clear he's eighty-five years old. And he was forty years old, 38 years before they left the wilderness. 78 years old when the conquest began. 85 years old now that the conquest is over. So the conquest was seven years long. Turn back to Joshua chapter 11. Also, this reference to a long time, again, is consistent with what we looked at a few weeks ago. uh, Back in Exodus chapter 23, verses 29 through 30. God said that they would not take the land in one year. They would take the land little by little. And so it was going to take several years, seven years. In Hebrews 10.36, you don't have to turn there either, but I think it's a great New Testament analogy. The Bible says that the serving the Lord takes patience and endurance and perseverance. And, you know, I remember Pastor emphasizing that numerous times as he was preaching through the book of Hebrews not too long ago on Sunday nights. And, you know, it says the, the Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Sometimes we just want things to happen in a hurry. We want things to be done quickly. We want things to, to just, you know, get over and be in the past. But that's not really the Lord's plan, you know, and that's... Many of us are given struggles in our own life that are going to take a long time for us to work through. Verse number 19, it says, There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. That was all described in in chapter 9. The Gibeonites were, you remember, they resorted to trickery and deceit in order to trick the Israelites into, into agreeing to spare their lives. You know, the, the disobedience on, on the part of the Israelites wasn't really deliberate disobedience. Um, you know, when you look at verses like verse 15, we're told Joshua left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. And, you know, we certainly have a lot of other verses in the book of Joshua that are very similar to that. And, um, you know, this is really kind of a... It's not a contradiction of those verses. 
Um, you know, the like I said, the, the this obedience wasn't really deliberate disobedience. I mean, there is a difference. I remember years ago when we were, you know, when my wife's mother was still alive, sometimes, you know, there seemed to be a little bit of competition between grandmas as far as giving Christmas gifts, you know, at Christmas time. And I remember we were going to my mom's house and we had gone to Alexis's mom's house the night before on Christmas Eve. And so the kids had gotten all their gifts. And so then the next day we were going to my mom's house. And so I said to the kids while they were sitting in the van, as we were getting ready to go in the house, I said, now don't tell my mom about all the Christmas presents you got from your other grandma. So I'm going in the house, you know, we're carrying the stuff in. And as I'm going through the door, my mom, you know, I hear her saying to, to the kids, you know, what'd you get from your other grandma? And Bradley says, I hear Bradley saying, you know, he's about four years old at the time. He says, my dad says we can't tell you about all the other presents. <laughs> you know, in his mind, he was being as obedient as he knew how. Um, you know, that's brutal honesty from a kid. And, you know, I look at what happened with the Gibeonites, and I think, you know, with what happened with the Israelites and the way that they were deceived by the Gibeonites, and, you know, isn't that how a lot of times we are before the Lord? I mean, we're trying to be obedient, but, you know, the best way that we know how, and and it doesn't really come across that way. You know, ultimately it's disobedience, but um, I don't think that, you know, the point is I don't think that, you know, that's the reason that statements like the one in verse 15 can be made. I don't really think that that was, you know, held against them because it wasn't, it wasn't really deliberate. It was, it was just an unfortunate situation that was the result of deceitfulness. Verse number 20. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. Of course, referring to the Canaanites that they should come in battle, that they should come against Israel in battle, that He might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor or no mercy. Genesis 15.16 told us that God had told Abraham that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full 400 years earlier. But now it is. It is full. No more mercy. They had had mercy for 400 years. They had been given mercy. And there does come a time when God says enough is enough. And I am so grateful for His grace. Um, You know, He didn't harden my heart to the point where I was not willing to accept Him and repent of my sin. Um, But I look at a lot of people who, particularly that I went to youth group with, and it doesn't appear that they're ever going to return to the Lord. And I don't know the condition of their heart, um, but their hearts seem very hard. And, you know, that's, you know, one of the things that we we try to stress and emphasize with the young people in the youth group, you know, don't think you're going to run off and do your own thing and then, you know, you're just going to decide on your own 
terms and at your own time and under your own conditions when you're going to return to the Lord. Because it just doesn't work like that. And I can just look at all all kinds of people that, you know, like I said, that I grew up with that it doesn't appear they're ever going to return to the Lord. And I don't know if that's because the Lord has hardened their heart. I don't know. I don't know the reasons. But I know that, you know, you can reach a point where you have pushed the Lord too far. We're not going to turn there, but in Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, and 28, all three of those verses tell us that God gave those people over to their sin. He just gave them over to their sin, and they couldn't turn back. And, you know, we just can't tempt the Lord. We can't think that we're going to do our own thing and then decide we're going to return to the Lord on our, on our own timetable. I remember Dr. McGee put it this way. He said that you're never going to reach a point in your life where, God cannot, where God's grace cannot reach you, but you may reach a point in your life where you cannot reach the grace of God. In other words, if you're going to, to destroy your mind on drugs or something else or, you know, something similar to that, you're not going to be able to comprehend the gospel. And you're not going to be able to blame God for that. There's, there's a difference. I like how Dale Ralph Davis puts it. He says, don't think you can escape this God by running to the New Testament. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, take heed lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I think that's what a lot of people have a tendency to want to do. They kind of look at the Old Testament God as a different God than the New Testament God. And He's not. He's the same. He doesn't change. It's the same God then that we have today. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 24 and 25. Speaking specifically of the land, it says, Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things. And of course, there was a long list given before of all of the abominations that the Canaanites and others had done. Defile not yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you. And the land is defiled. Therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. So God is making the point there that the land is defiled by these particularly, you know, this sinfulness, this wickedness. And it's going to spew out the inhabitants. Just like, you know, when you eat something you dislike and it comes up, it's vomit. Um... You know, that land is just not going to tolerate that type of wickedness. And so God is making the point to the Israelites that they're not they're not receiving a special privilege. They're going to they're going to re, you know, they're going to face the same destruction that the nations that are already there are facing if they refuse to be faithful to him. 
Now turn back to Joshua chapter 11, verse number 21. It says, And at that time came Joshua and cut off the Anakim from the mountains. Now the Anakim are the giants. And there's a, t- you know, I, I myself, I certainly have a tendency when I read of the giants, I have a tendency to want to skip over that and gloss over that, maybe relegate that to something that we're going to emphasize in the four and five year olds classroom, maybe. You know, we just a lot of times don't think it's all that big of a deal. But they were real people. This is not mythology. This is a real situation. So we're going to take a little bit of time and look at these giants. Turn back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. We're not going to dig deep into this, but I think it's beneficial to look at some of what the Bible has to say regarding giants. Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. Of course, this is way back at the beginning. This is prior to the flood. It says, There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. Turn to Genesis chapter 14. We know that there were giants up until the time of David. So, from Genesis chapter 6 to... The time of David is well over a thousand years. So there was a long period of time when giants existed in one form or another and in many parts of, of the earth at that time. Genesis chapter 14, verse 5. And in the fourteenth year came Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him and smote the Rephaim, that's another name for giants, in Ashtaroth, Kernaim, and the Zummim, and you'll find that word in Deuteronomy a little bit differently. It's the Zam Zummim. Again, another reference to the giants. The Zummim and Ham and the Emims. And you'll find that word in Deuteronomy also. That was the Moabite word for the giants. And the Emims in Shabbat Kerithaim. Turn to Numbers chapter 13. This is a passage that we're pretty familiar with. This is the one I made reference to earlier. The one where the twelve spies were sent to bring back a report of the promised land. Numbers chapter 13, verse 32. says, And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. The sons of Anak, actually, Anak actually means long-necked. The Israelites saw themselves as grasshoppers or insects in their sight. Now, that may be somewhat of an exaggeration, but on the other hand, we probably don't really, we don't want to underestimate just how large these people really were. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse number 11. 
says, For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Ramoth of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof, four cubits the breadth of it after the cubit of a man. So, so pretty much all agree this bed was thirteen and a half feet long and six feet wide. This was, a, this was an extremely large person. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Verses 1 and 2 and 3. It says, Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakim, whom thou knowest and of whom thou hast heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? Very fearful. And don't ignore the question. Who can stand before the children of Anak? Verse 3 gives us the answer. Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee. As a consuming fire, he shall destroy them, and he shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord hath said unto thee. That's the whole point. That's the reason the question is asked. It's to convince these Israelites that there is no possible way that they can face these giants and defeat these giants without the Lord. That's, that's what verse 3 is saying. Understand, the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee, and later in the verse will drive them out. They were to clearly recognize they couldn't do this on their own. And we don't need to turn there, but Psalm 135, verses 10 through 12, and Psalm 136, 17 through 21, make clear God is taking the credit for destroying these giants. Specifically, Sihon and Og. In Amos 2.9, God says, I destroyed the Amorite whose height was like the cedars and strength like the oak. That's what God wants. He wants to drive these people to the point of... That's what He's using the giants for. Is to let these people know they can't do it on their own. They have to, they have to follow the leading of the Lord. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're all familiar with this story, David and Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Verses 4 through 7. It says, And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And that would put him at a minimum of nine foot nine inches tall. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of brass. And he had graves of brass upon his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. Now, that's 150 pounds of armor. 
weaponry and armor. That is quite a quite an individual that can work with that and not not manage to have it drag him down or make him ineffective. And of course, we know the argument that David makes to King Saul when King Saul tries to put the armor on David. David says, "I can't work with this. I haven't." Prove this. I haven't tested this. I don't know what you know. I don't know what I'm doing with this stuff. This isn't how this this is how I I do it. And you know these men were huge. Um, the you know here Goliath being almost ten feet tall. There's there's actually a lot of archaeological evidence that that they have found that proves that these people that were this large existed. And they have discovered 64-pound sledgehammers. I remember years ago when I was breaking up my garage floor to try to get a new one, I was swinging a 12 or a 16-pound sledgehammer, and it just about took it all out of me. I can't even imagine, you know, a 64-pound sledgehammer using that effectively for any length of time. Um... But I'm guessing someone, you know, the size of Goliath, who can carry armor and weaponry weighing 150 pounds, that would be nothing to a guy like him. And, and again, you know, we don't really want to underestimate how large these people were. Remember in Deuteronomy, we read that the sons of Anak were great and tall. A 10-foot tall man doesn't weigh twice as much as a 5-foot tall man. He weighs exponentially more. You know, great and tall means that the taller you get, the broader you get. You know, you look at a lot of these NBA basketball players like Shaquille O'Neal that weigh not much more than a foot, more than a lot of us, and yet they may have 100 pounds on us. You look at somebody like Andre the Giant of wrestling fame, you know, who's seven foot five and he weighed 500 and some pounds. So to suggest that a guy who's almost 10 feet tall would weigh a thousand pounds might sound ridiculous at first, but if you really think it through, it probably isn't. You know, how much does a guy weigh that needs a bed made of iron that's 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide? I mean, these people are huge. And that's the point. That thought didn't cross my mind. <laughs> I'll think about that, Glenn. <laughs> uh, but anyway, verses 4 through 7 describe Goliath. And uh, look at verse number 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Have you seen this man? But jump over to verse 37. Look at David's response. David said, Moreover, the Lord hath to deliver me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear. He will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. So the question is, have you seen this man? It's almost like David's answer is no. No, I didn't really look at him. I didn't really focus on him. 
David said, I saw the Lord. I mean, that's what his mind was drawn there in the light. It just seems like David is the size of a Goliath and nothing. Um, it's like David's attitude was, Goliath's just another opportunity to watch, just another opportunity for me to watch the Lord work. I mean, that's how he looked at him. It just seems like that's really the spirit of the text. Second Samuel twenty one twenty. We don't need to turn there. Tells us that many, some of these giants had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. They were just unusually large. Turn back to Joshua chapter eleven, verse twenty one. I don't know why we read chapter twelve. We're never going to get there. Joshua chapter eleven, verse. We're still in verse twenty one. Why is this mentioned? Because the giants were what caused the ten spies to fear. The giants were what caused the people to be... I mean, obviously it was their unbelief, but it was their fear of the giants that caused them not to put their faith and trust in the Lord. And God's drawing attention to this because He's saying, Look, I made good on my word. I'm faithful. I fulfilled my promises. I told you that you were going to be able to overcome, overcome these people. And you have. I mean, that's, that's the reason that, that they're mentioned. That's, that's why it's called to our attention. At that time, notice the beginning of verse number 21. You know, it's not clear whether or not this verse is really recounting something that had happened earlier within the seven-year conquest. Matthew Henry doesn't think so. He thinks that this, what is mentioned here in verse 21, was specifically the last thing that was done. In other words, when they had obtained their victory over those areas of northern Canaan, that they came down and that this was the last thing that they accomplished, that they drove the giants out of all of these cities that are mentioned here, Debur and Adam and Judah and so forth. And the reason he believes that is because he says God reserved this confrontation until after Israel had become expert warriors and more importantly, after their faith had grown and seeing God work and give them so many previous victories during that seven years. In other words, the most difficult obstacle was saved until their faith had really grown and matured. And, you know, you could kind of make that argument about David. Um He didn't confront Goliath until he had already experienced the deliverance that God had given him, you know, in encountering the bear and the lion. And I I see that the way that's the way the Lord works in our lives. He gives us trials and tests that enable us to handle bigger trials and tests that are going to come later. Now, these cities... Debur and Anab, these are cities southwest of Hebron. Again, this is the land that, that later Caleb will request and receive. Uh, cut off. You know, they were destroyed from those places. They were driven back. Those that were in those specific places were killed, or they were driven back to these three cities mentioned in verse number 22, Gath, Ashdod, and Gaza. Now, 
Joshua did take the whole land, as we see in verse number 23, according to all that, that the Lord said unto Moses. So in verse number 22, when it says, There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the children of Israel, only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod there remain. Is that saying that Gaza and Gash and Ashdod are not part of the children of, not part of the land of the children of Israel? In other words, is there legitimacy to the Palestinians' claim today that the Gaza Strip is theirs? That God never intended for Israel to have it? I don't think so. But I think we've got to look at some other verses to, to, to come to that conclusion. Jump over to Joshua chapter 15, verse 47. Again, this is the list of cities that are given to the tribe of Judah. And we see in verse 47, it says, Ashdod with her towns and her villages, Gaza with her towns and her villages. So you can go back to chapter 11, but no. So, so we're told there that God intended them to have that land. And in Genesis chapter 17, when God made these promises to Abraham, he told Abraham that he was giving this land to Abraham's seed for an everlasting possession. So I think the Palestinians' claim isn't without merit. Is without merit. They they have no claim to that land. God intended for the Israelites to have it. Now, never are we told in Scripture that they ever took complete control of all of the land to the extent where all of the people were driven out. We know even under you know as we saw when we get to when we get to First Samuel, even under David's reign, you know there were constant battles with the Philistines, and those people remained there. So, is there a contradiction here? I don't think so. Verse number 23 says, Joshua took the whole land. We've got to look at the statements very carefully. Some of these statements in which we are told that they took the whole land, uh, we're not not being told that all of the people were killed in in the entire promised land. you know, some people look at verse 22, and, and some translations actually have there at the after the word Israel the word except. In other words, there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the children of Israel except in Gaza and Gathan and Ashdod. In other words, there was no doubt that the land was Israel's, but some of the people remained. And there's again, there's no contradiction here. If you go back to chapter 11, verse 14, look at verse 14. Remember the first half of chapter 11, the immediate context. This is the battle, the, the conquest of the northern area of Canaan. It says, in all the spoil of these cities. What cities? The cities that are mentioned within the first 15 verses of chapter 11. This is the alliance that, that, you know, had been put together by the north to prevent Israel from coming to them. So at the end of the verse when it says, until they had destroyed them, neither left they any to breathe, That's not a statement making reference to the fact that Israel didn't leave any to breathe in the entire promised land or in the entire land of Canaan. That is referring specifically to the first half of the verse, the first part of the verse where it says these cities. So, again, we've got to be really careful. I I realize, you know, because I've, you know, looked at this for a long time. And a lot of times, you know, if we don't, if we're not careful, it seems like there's contradictions in terms of, you know, how many people were left and how many people were restro- were destroyed and, and, you know, were they allowed to come back in? And, and you know, there's distinctions made. So I don't think we want to get too, 
too hung up on that. So again, verse number 23 tells us that the land was conquered according to the entire word of the Lord. And verses 21 and 22 are given us specifically to let us know that there was an exception as far as not all the people were destroyed. Okay, All of the land was taken. They had control of all the land, even though not all of the people were, were destroyed in every part of the land. Now, as Steve mentioned last week, Judges chapter 3 tells us that God left some of these people in the promised land, in the land of Canaan, particularly the giants, to test the Israelites later on. And God uses them for those purposes. That's exactly what He was doing with David. God was allowing him, God allowing God to, to put his might and power on display and to work through someone like David by leaving these people in the land. And in verse number 23, I realize we're almost out of time. It says, finally, the land rested from war. And I just I want to point out, Matthew Henry pointed out that God performed miracles at the beginning of these wars and on rare occasions, not continually throughout the entire seven-year conquest. In other words, seven years is over 2,500 days. You know, there was God sent hail one day, and God stopped the sun one day, and God performed other miracles such as the you know the parting of the Jordan River. But that was rare, and the same pattern is followed in the New Testament. You know, there were miracles performed at the beginning of the church. But for people to expect that that was the normal, everyday routine, it was not the case. Remember, there's 2,500 days throughout this seven-year conquest, and, and we're just, we just are given a glimpse of a few of the miracles that God performed. So the same thing is true today. The same thing is true in the New Testament church, that God, that, you know, miracles were the exception, not the rule at, at the beginning of that, you know, the, at the start of the church. And then also, Joshua can look back at this conquest and and really have have a lot of peace about it, and that's kind of a you know amazing statement in light of the fact of all of the blood that has been shed. But he's been obedient. I mean that's that's the point that's being made. He's he's been totally obedient to the Lord, so he doesn't have to look back with guilt and think, well, you know, wow, look what's happened. You know, we've we've killed a lot of people. We that wasn't that wasn't to be the case. You know, he was to be faithful to the Lord and he was faithful to the Lord. And so he didn't have to look back with regret and feel guilty. Obviously, you know, we don't like to see human suffering. But Joshua had decided that being obedient to the Lord was much more important than that. All right, we're out of time. So we will stop there and we will pick up with chapter 12 next week. Thank you.